0: And welcome to the ALC Par African Radio's discussion program. The discussion program brings together experts to reflect on a variety of current security issues facing Africa at local, national, and international levels.
1: Hello, and welcome everyone to Africa Week here at King's College London. Uh, my name is Munira Shayeb, as uh, Nayanka has introduced me. As part of Africa Week, we are in conversation with two uh, young African women who are involved in African literature. First, uh, we have uh, Jovanka Paquette-Perdigau, writer, editor, and translator from Guinea-Bissau, who has lived in Lisbon, Ivory Coast, and Senegal, and now she's in London. And we also have Nancy uh, Adimora, founder of AFREDA, multimedia online publishing company focused on African stories and a former ALC leadership student, uh, if we can uh, start with you, Ivanka, um, if I can ask you first, uh, what can we expect uh, to see in African literature in two thousand
2: and twenty that 's a um, big question but I, I think at least what i 'm looking for in uh, 2020 is to see um, African liter- literature actually become more inclusive and by this I mean actually when we speak of African literature have representation from writers from Francophone Africa and lusophone Africa. Uh, I was recently at a festival in Kenya called Makondo Literature Festival and it was actually the first festival to bring uh, writers from Anglophone Africa and writers from lusophone Africa which You know, I think only in 2019 for this to happen is actually a serious issue, and it shows that actually uh, us as African writers, we are still operating different silos of languages Mm -hmm. and not actually crossing the different borders. So I see that continuation of this conversation happening in 2020, and I'm particularly looking forward to um, the African Literature Festival happening in Berlin next year which will actually be only focusing on Eastern Africa. Mm
1: And Nancy, what
3: do you think about that? Ah, yeah, that was brilliant. I didn't even think about that, but I wouldn't because I'm English speaking. So that's—I think it speaks to kind of the blind spots that we each have when we're working in the publishing industry. Um, from my perspective, starting Frida, what I love about it is that you get everyday stories from Africa, um, from writers across the continent. So um, they're not necessarily stories about you know huge um, things that happen in society, but they're really everyday stories. Um, So what I would like to see, I think, in 2020 is this kind of content and storytelling translating into the formal publishing industries. And because... Um, my experience working with publishers in the West is that when they're looking for African stories, there's a particular African story they're looking for. In terms of who they are, who they see their audience as, it's not going to be me. It's not going to be Ivanka. It's going to be, you know, probably a white middle class reader. So in terms of the stories that they present as African stories, they want something that they can consume almost anthropologically. You know, mm-hmm. they want it to be a- about, you know, coups. They want it to be about warfare or poverty so what I'm looking forward to hopefully is you know publishing industries across the world just looking at stories from a very kind of everyday mundane um, yeah and more
1: representative of across the continent and for our audience could you tell us what uh, Alfreda
3: oh yeah so a which people obviously sometimes don't know how to pronounce they say Afriada they say Afridata but it's actually a because it comes from the two words Africa and reader um so it was essentially it started basically when I was literally doing a lot of commuting and I was reading a lot of brilliant um stories on like personal blogs and I was thinking okay this is brilliant but I know that only their sister and their mum is reading this there's no way that they have the time to invest in the marketing or the publicity that you need to kind of amass an audience um so i thought it'd be brilliant if there was a central platform where you can have everyday stories and from my perspective Africa and Reader is very intentional because I wasn't a writer. And a lot of the times these platforms are started by people who are writers themselves. But I wanted to start a platform just for the readers, just for the people who have, you know, a busy day at work, but don't mind kind of on the train just reading a five minute story from Kenya. So, yeah.
1: Okay. Um, Fiction has always spoken um, and sometimes mirrored the societies in which writers live. Mm. Now what can you say about um, African writing in the diaspora with uh, the UK moving into Brexit in 2020, uh, the US stand on um, uh, immigration, and also the rise of the far right in uh, most of Europe? Uh, Where do you see um, uh, writing in the African diaspora going in in that
2: sense? Uh, I think African writing is already responding to some of these happenings. There's actually a book um, that was released right after a year after Brexit, and it's called Darling. I forget uh, the name of the writer, but it's by a I think a Nigerian uh, British writer. And the book actually is about is set within the context of Brexit. It is about an African woman who becomes a stepmom of this child and moves in with a new partner who's British. And she ends up being targeted, actually, by far-right movements in the course of the story. Um, So I think there's already a trend that's going in that way to actually start to craft our own responses about these world events. But I do think that at the end of the day, um, the events that are happening, for example, like Brexit here, um, are not necessarily the center of African literature. Mm -hmm. I think in the continent there's already... Uh, significant events, significant conversations that are happening and Brexit is not necessarily the center of the discussion Um, but I think it's up to the diaspora and the people that really um, live through these experiences that are going to be responding to that And I think we'll see that more in the coming years. Mm
1: -hmm. Do
2: you have something to say? Yeah, I
3: think I really resonated with the end of what you said in terms of it's not the centre of the story. Funnily enough, like I was born and raised in London. Um, I'm a Londoner. I have the accent. I have the passport. But when I think about Brexit and when I think about all these things that are happening... I mean, this is being recorded, so I might regret this, but I feel like it's, it's it's almost none of my business, if that makes sense. And what I mean by that is I don't claim ownership over these conversations or what's happening in Westminster. Um, so I've never, for example, lived in Nigeria. I've never lived in Lagos. But when I'm on a road and there's potholes or there's problems i can visibly see in lagos i take ownership over those problems right Mm -hmm. so in terms of storytelling my story isn't what happens in westminster it's what happens in lagos even if i'm here and i think that speaks to the diaspora as well and how we how we contextualize identity and what we consider our stories i think our stories, the lens will always kind of be focused on the continent, or it will be the West with an African lens, as opposed to kind of seeing it as a be-all and end-all of our story. So I think in terms of the stories that are coming out of the continent and from the diaspora, I think it will be largely unchanged, because obviously we are affected by Brexit, but it's none of our business as well, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> 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 so. I'm talking about, um, as a writer, you always reflect what happens in Lagos rather than what what happens in London. For a long time, most writers that we have come across um, were and are still from Nigeria. Uh, Why do you think that is? And do you think that trend is likely to change in the coming years with probably writers from other parts of the continent? Nancy first. Um, So I would say, first off, in terms
3: of... Sheer numbers, okay, there's a lot of Nigerians in this world, right? So if you just think mathematically, um, so particularly of Frida, in terms of the submissions we receive, the vast majority are Nigerians. There was one time we got a story from Mauritania and I was literally dancing for an hour straight. I honestly couldn't believe that somebody who wasn't Nigerian submitted work to us. Um, So, but I think the reason behind that is just that we have just a very strong literary tradition, you know? in, you know, parts of Nigeria, a lot of things is about kind of prestige, right? So the fact that you're able to look at certain writers like Be, for example, mm-hmm. like Shoinka, for example, and see that these are successful people who have written, suddenly if you, you know, have the idea to write, you see it as almost a viable career or something that you could potentially do because people have come before you and they have shown you that, you, you know that they can do a great job of it, so you almost can too. So it's just that idea of you can't be what you can't see, and if it has been presented as an option, I think more people are likely to pick it up.
1: Mm-hmm. And do you think uh, language can be a barrier sometimes? You mentioned the, the, the stuff from a Mauritanian.
3: Mm. A Mauritanian
1: would write in French mm. or in Arabic. Is, is language a barrier, you think? Huge
3: barrier, you know, and I think um, I was very intentional... Um, my platform is not a nigerian platform it's an african platform and i think there's so many organizations who say they are africa focused and actually when you look at it content wise it is nigeria if you're lucky ghana might sneak in if you're very lucky might get a bit of kenya um and (laughs) you know south africa (laughs) i really wanted to move away from that Mm -hmm. and that comes from intentionally kind of being aware of my blind spots and trying to reach out to different communities. What we will always struggle with, is what Yvanka picked up, is definitely the idea of language. Language is such a huge barrier and there's some beautiful parts of the continent that I simply can't explore currently because of language, mm-hmm. but in the past, we've done some um collaboration. So, Afri for example, I think it's a Spanish, so we um done an anthology and then they translated all the stories into Spanish, right? And suddenly, mm-hmm. a whole new community of people are engaging with our stories in a way that they simply couldn't. Mm-hmm. So, I think there's opportunities for partnership um, in the future and also kind of bringing people on the team who can help my blind spots or the team's blind spots Mm as it currently is.
1: Ivanka, you want to say something about that? Uh, Well,
2: yeah, I mean, I think language is definitely a barrier. And like I was saying, I do think that the issue is that English is the lingua franca of the world. Mm. And, you know, if, for example, Portuguese was the lingua franca of the world, how we conceive of African literature will be through the aesthetics of Lucifer mm-hmm. literature, and we would not be talking necessarily about Nigerian and Ghanaian writers. It would be a, a completely different conversation. So there is, I think we have to acknowledge that, because um, we often think of West versus Africa, but there's, even within Africa, there are also degrees of privilege, and mm. people that do speak English have a certain access to different worlds, uh, mm-hmm. different publishing agents and Mm -hmm. things like that, and that plays an influence. Mm
1: -hmm, Definitely. And uh, staying with the issue of language, um, I was talking to a friend of mine who is a writer a few days ago, and strange enough, he mentioned the fact that a writer can never express himself or herself uh, better than they do in their own language. You Mm -hmm. know, they can never really reflect how they feel or what the situation is like in any other language apart from their own. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that African writers will um, get to a point where they will start you know, advocating for mm-hmm. writing in their own languages and being known abroad, not just in their own countries? Mm-hmm. What do you think about that?
2: Yeah, I think there's been a movement uh, with the Kenyan collective called Jalada. They've actually translated. They've done the, the most translated short story from Booniwa Tiongo that started from Kikuyu and I actually did a translation in Portuguese. I think it's a very um, difficult issue because if you look at certain countries, and I'm talking about for Lucifer and African countries, there is no common language necessarily, and there there aren't institutions and books and dictionaries and certain of those African languages, Mm -hmm. and that knowledge is actually being being lost. Uh, When you're talking about Kikuyu and the possibility of writing Kikuyu, publishing, having a whole infrastructure around promoting the language. It's a very different conversation. So I think e- when I hear these conversations about translation language and being known within Africa, we have to remember that different countries have different have had different experiences mm-hmm. and don't necessarily have access to those languages. In terms of getting t- being known outside of Africa, I think it's already happening, but I do think that in African literature, if you want to be a successful writer that lives off of your craft, mm-hmm. you have to be known outside of Africa. And unfortunately, the gays, the agents, the publishing houses, most of them with the money and the privilege are not based in Africa.
1: True. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you
3: have to say? Yeah, I would, I would echo a lot of your banking sentiments. I think it's also... Language is very... Um, it's not black and white. So taking Nigeria as an example... You know the official language in Nigeria is English, right? And so even if you talk about our own languages, I'm from southeastern Nigeria, so definitely my language is the Igbo language, right? But in terms of, I have cousins who were born and raised in a southeastern part of Nigeria who can't speak anything other than English, you know? Mm-hmm. The idea that um, obviously there was this whole controversy around kind of Lionheart and how it was disqualified for the Oscars because it had too much English, and then there was a conversation about well, even though it's English, it's a different kind of English, mm-hmm. right? It's Nigerian English, and there is a there is a difference, you know? Not even just necessarily the pigeon, for example, but we have, I think Chingu Cheba had this beautiful quote that I'm not going to try and say because I'm going to ruin it, but it's something along the lines of, even though he's speaking English, like he's speaking Igbo through the English, you know, and that really resonated with me. Um, So for example, something like how far in a sentence. So if you meet a Nigerian, you're like, oh, how far, right? Those are English terms, right? So, but an agent or an editor here might cross it out because it doesn't make grammatical sense. Mm -hmm. But amongst Nigerians, we know exactly what we're trying to do in a greeting. So I think that, even in using the language of English, as long as you own it, as long as you make it yours, and it's authentic in terms of how you speak, I think that's what we should be moving towards, as opposed to, you know, we have to specifically, you know, take your bag and use your In <coughs> I think that's there's a lot of power in that, and I would mm-hmm. love to see more of that. I wouldn't want to just disqualify anything that comes out of the continent that might be kind of whether it's English or you know Portuguese or French.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. I think even though uh, these languages were an imposition, I think when, for example, when you talk about Portuguese literature, we need to talk about literature that's being produced from Africa, written in Portuguese. Mm-hmm. We have to also look at French literature and talk about Alain Mabanckou from mm-hmm. Congo, mm-hmm. and that is a conversation that I think in the West they're not wanting to have. Um, but I do see that, you can see, for example, with Portugal, there's been a shift in power when it comes to languages because um, Brazil, because they were sending a lot of students to Portugal, they had to change the Portuguese language to accommodate Brazilian students. Mm-hmm. So it's not, that shows you that languages can change and actually accommodate a variety of different speakers and we can recognize there are different ways to speak English, to speak Portuguese Mm -hmm. and speak French. Mm -hmm.
1: That's right. Um, As a North African myself coming from Tunisia, I'm always aware of this divide between North Africa and the rest of Africa. Mm -hmm. Um, Like um, writers from West Africa are known in the Anglophone world, you know, uh, the French ones are uh, like from Senegal and Gambia, not Gambia from Senegal and Ivory Coast mm-hmm. and places like that are known in France. Mm-hmm. North Africa is like, even if writers write in French or even try english mm-hmm. are not known in the Anglophone world mm-hmm. or, you know, outside of North Africa, if you like. When are we going to bridge that gap, yeah. Do you think, in terms of literature? When are we going to, you said how surprised you were to read mm-hmm. that piece from the Mauritanian mm-hmm. writer. Uh, when are we going to open the door for more, you know, um, literature coming from that part of the world? Mm-hmm. who wants to go first? <laughs>
3: um, I would say... So there's a lot um, about that question that I can't necessarily speak to, but what I've loved about freedom, and one of the reasons that I started it, is this idea of travelling through stories, right? This idea that as one singular human being, there's a limit to how much I can explore the continent and get to know different people. But even if I don't have the funds to get on the plane, I can read a five-minute story from somewhere on the continent and for a moment I can feel like I'm there right and I can feel that I understand who they are or I get a sense of how even though we are so different there's something that kind of really binds us together and in terms of the stories that I've received from North Africa you you read it and you see how we are so similar. Does that Mm. make sense? Mm -hmm. In something similar as like culture. So you want to go out but before you ask your mum if you can go out you have to wash the plate. Something small like Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. um, I think once you have more stories like I said everyday stories about humanity and about people on the continent then you almost... I think that all the divisions start to erode from a personal, individual level, mm-hmm. um, in terms of a broader scale, I'm not, I'm not sure um,
1: how we go about that, I think Ivanka has a good idea. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think what you said uh, applies to films as well, I mean, Absolutely. When, I, when I watch a film from any other part from um, of Africa, it's like... It's not a discovery for me because absolutely. there is so much in common, you know. And it's yours. And it's yours, yeah. absolutely. And yet we we know probably more about Western countries than we know about absolutely. our own, you know, and that's, that's a big shame. Mm-hmm. What do you want to say about that? Yeah.
2: Well, I think that um, to bridge the gap between North Africa and the rest of Africa, we have to start by thinking and challenging what is African literature. Mm-hmm. Because the problem is, Um, I see North Africa, the literature coming from there, as African literature. But when you go out in the world and you ask people what African literature means, they usually think of Nigerian writers, Kenyan writers, uh, maybe Ghanaian writers, South African writers. And there is a world that's projected. So um, I approached a Nigerian publisher to publish a book from Rousseau from Africa. And three, I think it's... three main characters are white no sorry two out of three were white characters and only one main character was black mm-hmm. and her issue was that why if this is an African novel why is it that the main points of view are mostly white mm-hmm. and she said I'm looking for an authentic lucifer African mm-hmm. literature uh, story so her idea was I want something like a chino achebe novel mm-hmm. something set in a village something that is just a you know a story that is with just black characters Mm -hmm. and i had to explain to her that actually if you look at the lucifer experience it's very very complex it's very different Mm -hmm. we don't have for example i'm from guinea-bissau but i can't really say that i've been to my village in guinea-bissau in fact my family is mostly from the city you know so it's a different experience and i think that's the problem with bridging the gap is that there isn't an understanding that African literature isn't just set in Nigeria. It's set in many places like Tunisia, Morocco, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there are some advancements with Leila Slimani. She mm-hmm. published a book called, um, in French it's called Enchance en Si douce mm-hmm. I forget the name in English. But she has actually been acquainted by the French government as the cultural minister. Mm-hmm. Now that's problematic in another way. Uh, But there's been a conversation actually about, you know, reviving and including more literature coming from North Africa, and what does it mean also, Francophone literature? Sure.
1: Um, My final question to both of you is um, African Africans have always been portrayed um, in films as in uh, literature, Western literature, as being, uh, you know, a place of poverty, a place of disease, a place of all of that. Mm. Do you think that's a trend that is changing now, with the with the world, the way the world is changing, um, mm. or do you think it's still the same? And what can African <coughs> writers do about that? Okay,
3: so I think my, from my perspective, um, picking your last point, what can African writers do about it? I find it really interesting, and I was speaking to a friend about it the other day about. You know, not just African writers, but a lot of African brands or people who are pro-Africa, they almost set on themselves this idea of, I'm going out to change the narrative of Africa. This idea that there is, you know, a way that Africa has been portrayed and through their writing or through their organisation, they almost want to shift it. And for me, my question is always, who is your audience? Because if I was your audience, you wouldn't worry about my only perception of Africa being, you know, poverty, because I know that, right? Mm -hmm. So I feel like in terms of writers, if somebody reads your work and gets a broadened perspective of the continent, that should be a bonus, and that is brilliant, and that is, you know, another thing to celebrate. But in terms of the audience of the readers, I feel like your readers should be they shouldn't always have a war perception of Africa. You should write for an audience who a lot of the time know, you know that Africa is more than poverty or war. Mm-hmm. So I'm just really intrigued about the audience or who people are you know, directing their content to if they feel like they have this you know, big burden to kind of change a narrative.
1: Mm-hmm. So. Ivanka, you want
2: to say something? Um, I think that there is a trend shifting away from that, and I think it depends on what types of literatures are you reading because I think definitely in commercial fiction if a book is set in Africa people or commercial and crime they expect to see certain tropes definitely but the literature that's coming out from Africa has already challenged some of these tropes mm-hmm. and it's going to continue to do so and like Nancy said it is about your audience and at the end of the day I think the only thing you can do is just Right. Good quality. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And just to
3: pick up on that, so um, My Sister the Serial Killer is a book that was um, set in, oh my gosh, I don't want to say Nigeria because I thought we were talking <laughs> <against> Nigeria. <laughs> 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 but it's set in Nigeria. And it's just basically about, you know, a comical, light-hearted book about a woman whose sister happens to be a serial killer, right? And it's, not, it's got nothing to do with, you know, politics or any serious issue in the continent. But... Publishers in the West picked it up and it has done so incredibly well. Mm -hmm. And I don't necessarily think that her intention or her reason behind writing a lighthearted and funny book was I need to change the narrative. It was just I want to write a story that is kind of in my heart or in my spirit to write a lighthearted story. And in terms of the impact of that, in terms of conversations I've had from that lighthearted story, um, the impact is you know, far more than she could have imagined. But I don't think she was setting out to change a narrative. So mm-hmm. I do think it is shifting. Mm-hmm. I do think publishers are looking for more stories um, because in terms of who their audience is, their audience has shifted and they're trying to get, you know, um, a different demographic of people to start investing in books. And they know that they actually have to share more stories that represent them
0: as well. Yeah. You're listening to the discussion program on the ANC Pan-African Radio. Stay tuned.
1: Well, thank you both. Uh, That was so interesting and engaging. So now we can open um, the floor to questions from the audience. Anyone who wants to ask a question? Yes. Um,
4: let me say thank you very much I think it's an absolutely fascinating panel thanks to to all of you for that I wanted to pick up on the final point that was made here about this attempt to change narratives or or otherwise Um, and I I was wondering though, you you referenced this really fascinating uh, uh, book by Oyin called Braithwaite Mm -hmm. I think it is Um, and I agree entirely but I wonder the extent to which her book being picked up it you know, if she'd written that book many years ago, would it have been picked up? And, and and so I wonder whether there is a need for those that have set out to challenge particular narratives about the African continent to complicate the way we think about it. or so not to say that there isn't poverty or there isn't, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. You know, there are these challenges because those challenges exist worldwide. But to say, A, you know, let's not essentialize it about Africa. It's not only in Africa where this happens. But, uh, you know, also to say it happens alongside many other things, Uh, you know, because I wonder, I'm not sure that that novel would actually have been picked up and treated seriously if it hadn't written a while ago, because it wouldn't have fit into a narrative. But she's writing at a time where there's a lot going on about Nigerian film, um, even if you think of, uh, you know, Africans in the diaspora identifying as African, which is, you know, also something that probably didn't happen so much before. Um, so, is this accumulative, So, this this success can we see that as something that has come on the shoulders of other work that went on before? Thank you.
1: Thank you. Um, question for Nancy. You want to answer that? Uh, yeah,
3: I, I, a hundred percent. I think agree with what you're saying in terms of it has come on a wave of something else. So, people seeing. People seeing certain stories as attractive, almost, not necessarily a trend, but almost it's trendy to engage in different stories. So I, I do see that. But also, in terms of, you know, when we look at publishing, for me, I don't like looking at, at it as like a machine. I look at it as individual people in a room who are making everyday decisions, you know? Um, so it took, it always takes one person to read a story and to say, I identify with this story, you know? So I think the point I'm trying to make is that somebody else could have read the story Mm -hmm. and rejected it in the same way they would have rejected it 50 years ago because I don't think that publishing has shifted enough to kind of allow for everyday stories. But I think that because of the trends or because of the waves that we're seeing, it has... And I think the book, in terms of what it has done, a lot of publishers, particularly Western publishers, are actively looking for new stories like this from across the continent. It will still be definitely limited in certain ways, but I do think that you know it is a wave that we'll continually keep seeing. Uh-huh. Thank you. Um,
1: you want to
2: comment? Um, I think actually, for me, I think this is a bit of a trend. And I think... African literature has always existed but also at the same time always been a trend in the West Um, after colonialism there was, if you look at the Chinua there was this race also to publish certain types of stories, certain narratives, and now even right now in the UK publishing scene, I feel like there's all these diversity schemes, there's all this talk about black British writers and books are being published but that doesn't mean necessarily that The gatekeepers are changing. Uh, It doesn't mean that we have more black agents, it doesn't mean that we have different types of narratives. We had uh, a few years ago, when Americana actually came to the scene, we had uh, a demand for narratives about the diaspora and migration, and now it seems like we've moved to something more of pre-colonial Africa, you know, Africa without the lens of the West. So I think there always seems to be a trend, and I think like Nancy said, it's true that it comes down to the individuals and it's an inverted choice. And, but I do think that she, she's lucky to have come at a particular time where people are receptive and looking for these kind of stories. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, if you can say your name and where you are, where you, where
0: you study. My name is Silvanus. Mm-hmm. I'm a student at King's College London. I've written a question down here. Uh, there have been uh, an upsurge of uh, black independent indigenous publishers within, for example, the UK and maybe in the continent. Just in your opinion, since you've dwelled on publishing, do you think that we are going to move to a more fairer and accessible publishing system for both the African readers and the writers?
1: Thank you. Uh, you want to go first? Uh,
2: well, I don't know. I think we've made some strides with um, publishing going digital and having people have more access, actually, to digital mediums. And I think publishing, even the definition, has expanded. Um, I remember there was these two ladies, actually, that started at King's. They started their own publishing house. It was a digital one called Bahati Books. Mm-hmm. And they did so well, and all of this was online. They even went as far as publishing books, uh, crime a crime, a collection of short stories that were crime but based in Mozambique so they, it has sort of granted more access to readers but at the same time digital um, if you look at the publishing houses that control like Penguin, Penguin is basically a huge com- conglomerate that controls different publishing houses and at the end of the day this is one of the big publishing houses that actually has that Money and power and can decide the fate of writers. And I think even if you're published with a small publishing, let's say in Africa, competing against a writer that's been published in, I don't know, Faber, for example, can be quite difficult. So I don't know. It comes down basically to money. And I don't think that that has shifted that massively. But we are lucky now that with digital media, you can, we've actually had more readers come forth and be able to engage with African writers.
3: Yeah, I think um, I would say you definitely hit the nail on the head in terms of like innovation is all that's needed in terms of bridging the gap. So having worked in a traditional publishing industry, I'm able, I have been able to see the different steps and the different um, parts, moving parts that have to come together in order for the You know the chain to necessarily work, Mm -hmm. Um, and in terms of publishing specifically on the continent, we I feel like we simply don't have the infrastructure for that. And I always kind of have that issue in the back of my head in terms of okay, so for example, say we were to do you know a print anthology. In London, how am I going to make sure that somebody here receives it and it's at, you know, a fair price for them in terms of, there's a lot of different things in play in terms of the infrastructure required for publishing. Mm -hmm. But I do think that digital, to some degree, um, is the response for that. But also there is... There is also innovation that we need to do because some people love a good book, right? A physical book, right? So I feel like although digital does allow us to leapfrog some of the infrastructure, in, infrastructural challenges, I don't think we can just say, okay, when it comes to African literature or African publishing, it's going to be digital and we've solved all our problems. I do think that we do have to... Um, just look for ways to switch it up in a way that we are able to serve different kinds of readers across the continent as well. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Thank you. I must admit that I am one of those people who still reads a book. Uh, yeah, a read same. Book. <laughs> same. Okay, sense. any more questions from the
3: audience? Anyone? Hi guys, thank you very much. Uh, my name's Ade, former student on the MSc Leadership and Development course. Um, I just want to take it a couple of steps back and ask with the idea of narrative changes, do you think that stems from the reader or do you think that stems from the writer? Um, and how, you know, what's your perception of why you think, you know, it either stems from the reader or stems from the writer? Thank
0: you.
2: Who wants to go first? <laughs> um, I think it stems from both, but I think the reason why there are these changes is basically history. There are different events happening. So, for example, um, if going back to the example of Shimamande Americana, it had been happening for a long time that Africans were migrating to the West, and I think people had an appetite to finally read those stories. And as someone who's lived in the diaspora, and I think for many people. There was just, you know, when you speak of African literature, you want to see yourself represented. And it goes back to the question you asked, is that African literature, like all literatures, ends up mirroring the changes in societies. And I think as African societies are evolving and changing, that's basically what happens, is that we start to want certain narratives that mirror our experiences so we can connect.
3: Yeah, and I would say I like that you brought up um, Americana. Um, I think a lot is the reader as well, because people can read the same book and draw different things away from the book. So, for example, I've seen people talk about Americana. It's a book about migration, I do a love story. Do you know what I mean? So I feel like there are... Readers are taking different things away. And even when you um, have conversations with, you know, authors, for example, and somebody might ask a question like, oh, I saw that you were talking about, you know, post-colonial narrative They'll look at you like, well, that wasn't my intention at <laughs> all, you know? So I think... Um, when people come to a book, it's going to sound really idealistic, but when you come to a book, sometimes there are certain questions that you want answered, or there's certain things that you're looking for. And if you look hard enough, it's likely that you'll find it, you know? So I feel like some people have questions answered through reading, but it depends on the questions you came to the book with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, that was deep. <laughs> 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 Any more?
1: No. Okay. So maybe one final question for me. <laughs> <laughs> How is it like um, for you, young ladies, African ladies, uh, to be in the world of literature? How is it like to be African and female in the world of l- literature, living and working in the West?
0: Mm. <laughs> <laughs> is that very bold? <laughs> <laughs>
3: I, I would say it's very, for me, very empowering. I literally feel like stories are the currency of the world. You know, we, we see stories everywhere. And we when we don't even know that we're taking something in, somebody, so for example, say somebody's trying to sell you a pen, they have to tell you a story in order to convey an idea. So I feel like stories are incredibly powerful. Um, and what I love is that although, you know, we are... We are artists and we are producing the work. For me, I think it's really important as well to be behind the scenes in terms of the industries and making sure that we are, you know, amongst the decision makers in terms of what stories get commissioned, for example, how it's distributed. So I I love that, although, you know, we're still creating content, we're also in you know, in charge, and we're also, you know, dictating the kind of stories that we're sharing as well. So I think it's very empowering to be um, to work with stories in this kind of in this time in this season. Absolutely. And Ivanka.
2: Well, I think I'll speak from my experience of being a right an African writer living in the West, and I'll say it's very hard, and it's a very strange place to be. And I say this because um, as someone that's from Lucifer, Africa to be living in London and to go to African literature events where I obviously went with the expectation to see myself. Most of the times I don't see myself. And most of the times people have questions or will talk about the African experience as being just one, and usually it it is Nigerian. (laughs) And um, it's also really hard because I've been living in London for I think, yeah, 10 years or more. Yeah, 10 years, and um, it's, it becomes weird because I still feel like an African writer, but after living 10 years outside of the continent, then you start to question, am I, you know, I'm from the diaspora, am I a black British writer, Uh but then when you're a writer and you're trying to submit and they say things like, we're looking for the next black British writer, they don't mean African writers and they certainly don't mean a writer from Mm -hmm. Guinea-Bissau. And that's another difficulty even explaining where Guinea-Bissau is Mm -hmm. to people that are not familiar with Africa. I have Nigerian friends that didn't know that Guinea-Bissau was in West Africa. So you can imagine being yeah, an African writer living in the West but it still comes with certain privileges. But when you want to apply for certain things that are for African writers, then the condition is you have to live on a continent. Mm. So you're so always sort of in between, but at the same time with a certain privilege because you can access the agents that are the gatekeepers, the publishing houses that are the gatekeepers of just not African literature but literature as a whole. You know so I'd question. say it's difficult yes, I've sure. got a
3: question for you in terms of when how you present yourself as a writer are you your banked a writer
2: mm-hmm.
3: or do you do you carry Africa with you? Does <laughs> that make sense <laughs> right, in terms of how you present yourself um yeah ex- externally
2: um I wouldn't say I carry Africa. Um, I, this sounds really corny, but as they say, Africa is within you. Uh, <laughs> I just, I don't feel that I need to, <laughs> I don't need to announce to people. I don't need to carry Africa. I think every time I've gone somewhere and presented myself, I've always said, I'm Yovanka the writer. Mm. But I've noticed that people do see me as an African writer. Mm. Uh, that doesn't bother me, but I will say that actually, what's been interesting in my journey is that I've really struggled, actually, I feel, with um, entering the Anglophone African literature spaces. Mm -hmm. And it took for me to actually do my research and to really look into more Lucifer African writing And that's when people started to approach me, and and they actually have put that tagline on me. So they're like, oh, we want someone to discuss Lucifer and African writing. Mm. Who do we know? Oh, just (laughs) Yovanka. So I sometimes feel like that is a burden or identity that people try to put on me. But I feel that actually it is my duty as someone from Lucifer and Africa to uh, make sure that African literature isn't just the experience of Nigerians or Ghanaians, but that we actually open the doors not just to Guinea-Bissau, but to places like Senegal and Ivory Coast, and it's a table that's inclusive of everyone
3: yeah I think I think that's interesting because I asked because you know even this idea of African literature or being an African writer not everyone loves that mm-hmm. title so for example going into Waterstones you know having the idea of an African literature section and people seeing that as a problem and so initially I came from a reader's perspective right I was like what's everyone complaining about it is in my interest to go into a bookshop and to know where I'm going Do you know what I mean <laughs> it's in my interest to say this shelf is for nancy right but it was only a conversation with my sister who's into music you know um she does a lot of kind of rapping as well and a lot of the time people call her a female rapper and she's like i'm just a rapper and the second she said that i was like i get what they mean in terms of sometimes i'm actually just a writer you mm-hmm. know so the second you put certain labels on me there is certain expectations that you attach to my work, even if, you know, I wasn't setting out to do that. So I think it's kind of really interesting from a writer's perspective in terms of um, how you move in the world and knowing Mm -hmm. that another demographic of, you know, a white man can just speak. He doesn't speak for all white males. He's just a writer. Whereas we, particularly as a woman, there's just something that they expect from your work. Mm
2: -hmm. Um, And actually the... I've been to a few events to do with African literature and they were asking the, there were two af- female African writers and they were, somebody got up in the audience and it was an African person and they said, why don't you write in your African languages if you're an African writer, you know, like, so even when you have that label, people have these expectations mm-hmm. of how you're meant to present the work. Mm-hmm. And going back to what we're saying is that not everyone necessarily want that. Some people want that freedom to just be a writer Absolutely. and to write the language they feel comfortable Absolutely.
3: Mm-hmm. That's art. That's what art is, you know, just self-expression,
1: you know. That's right.
4: Yeah.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you very thank much you. for this um, very interesting, engaging conversation. Jovanka Paquet Pedigao, writer, editor, translator from Guinea-Bissau. Uh, Nancy Adimora, uh, founder of Alfreda, did I say it correctly? Yeah. <laughs> a multimedia online publishing company focused on African stories. And thank you to our, our audience for being here. Thank you. thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the discussion program on the ALC Pan African Radio. For this and other programs, please visit our website at alcafricanradio.com You can follow us on Twitter at Radio ALC and on Facebook at ALC Radio Numeral Number One. For feedback on this and other programs, please send an email to info at africanradio.com